through the book of Exodus. I think we're going to probably get up to about Exodus chapter 20, um, once we get to the giving of the Ten Commandments, and kind of stop after that. We may go through some of the sacrifices and laws of what they mean and represent. But we're continuing our study here through the book of Exodus. Now, if you weren't with us last few weeks, two weeks ago we talked about complaining and about how Israel just constantly was complaining. Complaining about drink and complaining about food, complaining about drink again. They complained that they didn't want to go into the promised land. They complained about this, they complained about that. There was at least two rebellions against Moses. Finally, God said, I have enough of this complaining. You guys don't get to go into the promised land. So that's why they wandered for 40 years. God basically let that generation of complainers die out. As he let those generation of complainers die out, he took the next generation then into the promised land. So, with that being said, you see this continual theme. Now, we went through Philippians 2, verse 14, which said, Do all things without complaining. God looks at complaining on the same level as sexual morality. So, as we're talking about complaining here, the only thing I hear is this fan making a whole lot of noise. So, I'm going to go shut this fan off. Thank you, Marcus. Notice I did not complain. Verbally, I did not complain. In my heart, I may have complained a little bit, but you guys don't see my heart, so it doesn't count as sin. But in Exodus 17, they complained out loud, which made it really bad. So that's why it's bad. So, But what you see here going on in Exodus 17 is this idea of they wanted more water. And we're going to get to this point a little bit. And you're going to see God and Moses continually getting frustrated with them. And you may say, what's the big deal? They need water. They need to drink. Just remember this point. This is the nation that saw the plagues. This is the nation that saw the Red Sea open up. This nation knows what God is capable of doing, but yet here they are whining and complaining they're not going to get a drink of water. The God that could part the Red Sea is able to give them water. They have a tendency to forget that. You've heard us use this point many times out here about the idea of macro faith and micro faith. Macro faith. Faith in the big picture items. I believe God created the heavens and the earth. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe God's word is true. Macro faith. Big picture. Micro faith. But I don't know if God can get me through today. Isn't that fascinating? I believe God can create the world out of nothing. But man, it's a rough day at work today. I don't know if I can get through it. Israel saw these huge things. Huge. But their faith would falter when they got thirsty. God says, don't you trust me? So with that being said, Exodus 17, then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to him, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us all out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your rod which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, once again, 
Why was God bothered? Why was Moses bothered? Because they lost their faith. I mean, look at this. Look at this emotion. Verse 3. Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Come on. That's really what God did. He did the ten plagues. He did the parting of the Red Sea. Just to get a few million people out in the desert to say, Good, now I can watch you starve and I can watch you die of thirst. But isn't it fascinating how in the midst of a trial and a tribulation, our emotions take over and our faith starts to dissipate. So all of a sudden, we start thinking things like, well, God doesn't care. He doesn't hear my prayers. What's the point of praying? What's the point of doing this? My marriage is never going to get better. Nothing is ever going to work out. I'm just going to die a grouchy old man, lonely. Oh, come on. You're God that did all these wonderful, miraculous things from Genesis to Revelation, can't take care of what you're facing today? That's that's what God is getting upset about. And that's why Moses is saying things in verse 2. Why do you tempt the Lord? Why are you testing the Lord? Are you doubting what His abilities are? Please just remember this. Just please remember The next time in your spiritual walk with the Lord where you're ready to throw the towel in and woe is me... Just ask yourself this. Is the problem I'm facing right now bigger than Genesis 1-1 when God created the world out of nothing? If you're facing a problem bigger than Genesis 1-1 when God created the world out of nothing, please call me immediately. Because I want to know what that problem is. Why do we test the Lord? Now, they're in the wilderness of sin, which does not mean sin. It means thorny or clay. And then they go to the wilderness here. They go to this place called Rephidim, which means rest or stay in verse 1. But there's no water. Now think about this. God, who is divinely guiding them, purposely took them to a desert where there's no water. He purposely took them there. Why did he purposely take them to a desert with no water? To show them, to prove to them that he will provide for them. Right now, God will purposely take you to a desert with no water. He still does it today. Not to make you upset, not to make you angry, but to teach you, to test you. Do you trust me? And what's going on in a wilderness? You've heard me teach this many times before. The purpose of a wilderness is this. To strip you of everybody and everything to remind you that the only thing you need is Jesus. That's the purpose of a wilderness. When you're in a wilderness time, your spouse can't bring you joy. Your kids can't bring you joy. Your health can't bring you joy. You may have a job you hate. You may not even have a job. You may have bills piling up. You may have health issues. I don't know what it is. You are in a wilderness and the world is completely overwhelming. And God is saying, I'm allowing this to remind you that the only thing you need is me. He brought them to Rephidim, which means rest, but there's no water. That's not very restful. And it's almost like God is saying, okay, Israel, what are you going to do? You're going to finally trust me? Because this is a test. Well, how did they do? Verse 2, the people contended with Moses. Depending on your translation, I think every translation says it differently. Good old King James, they chided, contended, complained, they quarreled. Were they going to have faith? Were they going to trust that the Lord was going to do it? See, verse 3, the people thirsted there for the water and the people complained against Moses. Moses. God did it in the past. Can't God do it now? 
Can't God meet their needs now? I mean, we just read not too long ago, back in chapter 15, they had water, but the water was so bitter they couldn't drink it. So God miraculously sweetened the water, if you will. Have they forgotten that already? They didn't have food. So last week, God brought bread from heaven down and quail in the evening. Have they forgotten that already? See, it amazes me when I'm talking to someone and they're going through a difficult time. And if I've known them for years, and some of you guys, I've had the opportunity to build a relationship with you. I've known you for 20 years. And if you've ever talked to me, you know sometimes I'll say this. I'll say, hey, do you care if I use your own words against you for a second? And I'll say, hey, do you remember five years ago when you were going through this and the Lord miraculously took care of you? Do you remember 10 years ago when you were going through this and you would call me and say, I can't do this? And I'd say, yes, you can because the Lord can help you. Don't you think that same God five years ago, 10 years ago that helped you through it can help you through this now? That's what the Lord is trying to teach Israel here. Guys, you saw what I can do. Do you trust me? But they didn't. They didn't. So they complained. They argued. They grumbled. So much so to the point of verse 4, Moses says, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. Lord, what am I supposed to do? Verse 5, go before the people. And I'll stop right there. Go before the people. What am I supposed to do before the people, Lord? Take with you some of the elders. Now, I love that verse. Because if you guys get so mad at me, you want to stone me, I'm bringing the board up with me. I'm just telling you that right now. If you're going to take me out, you're taking them out with me. And take with you the rod. Oh, do you remember the rod? I love the teaching on the rod. The rod goes back to our, one of our first studies in Exodus. This rod, this stick of wood, just takes a normal, natural piece of wood and turns it into something supernatural. And we talk about how that rod is a picture of you and I. We're just normal, natural people. We're nothing. And then God takes it and uses something supernatural in us. When Moses picked that rod up, when he was a shepherd back in Midian, do you think he really stopped and said, Lord, I want the most supernatural stick you could ever imagine. No, when we go back to the crick with the boys, we're walking around. If I want a rod, you find a stick. It looks like it's the right height. You kind of grab it. It feels good. You go with it. You don't think about it. But this rod becomes supernatural in the hands of God. Just remember that. I love you guys, but none of you bring anything to the table that God wants or needs. Nothing. And isn't that really freeing? I mean, isn't it really freeing to think, Lord, you don't, you don't need me to reach these people. Lord, you don't need me to teach. Lord, you don't need any of us. None of us are important. I am just a stick. I'm just a rod that's normal and natural. And God says, James, through you, through you, you guys out there, through the Holy Spirit, we can do something supernatural. I love that. So he takes the rod. He takes the people. He stands before this rock in Horeb. Horeb means desert. And strike the rock and water will come out of it. That's crazy. Is that any crazier than this idea of God coming down in the form of a man and living on this earth for 33 years then dying and rising three days later? That's crazy. You know one of the most important passages in this whole lesson tonight is? Verse 6, And Moses did. Just imagine being in front of millions of people, millions of people that want to stone you, want to kill you. And this is your great idea, God. I'm going to stand on this rock 
take the rock with this rod and strike it and trust that water is going to come out. And guess what? That's what he did. So they named the place Massa and Meribah. Massa means temptation or testing. Meribah means strife or contention. Because they were arguing with the Lord on this. Now, what does all this mean and represent? Can you go with me real quick to John 4? Leave your hand here in Exodus 17. John 4. They're in Horeb, which means desert. They have no water. And as we said earlier, the purpose of the desert, the purpose of the wilderness is to teach you that all you need is Jesus. Now listen here, guys. Do you really believe that? I mean, do you really honestly believe that all you need is Jesus? Do you really believe that your co-workers, your friends, and your family members who are not saved, that all they need is Jesus? Do you really believe that your co-workers, your friends, your family members that are really struggling right now and they're having a tough time and when they call you up on the phone, do you really believe that the only thing you can give them is Jesus? Because if you think... If you think that you can help them, you're going to give them some wonderful advice and counsel and my prayers will comfort them, my scripture, my kind words. Man, you're wrong. They need Jesus. And our purpose as a church is to point them towards Jesus. Our purpose of a church is not to point them to us. It's not to point them to Harvest Fellowship. It's to point them towards Jesus Christ. Because they're in a desert. I mean, have you ever been in a desert? We were driving out to California years ago. We were going through Death Valley. Desert. If I remember correctly, the temperature was like 110 or 111 or 112. Something ridiculous. And if I'm in the middle of that desert, and and my car breaks down, and I'm dying of thirst, and somebody comes up to me and says, James, I see you dying of thirst. Let me share this poem I wrote. Forget your poem. Go get me a bottle of water, please. But don't we do things like that? You're really hurting. Your life is really struggling. Let me give you my words of wisdom. Let me give you my... No, let me give you Jesus. Because Jesus is all you need when you're in the middle of the desert. Because the rock... That, that Moses hits is Jesus. And this is not something that we even need to debate on because in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul comes right out and says, hey guys, the rock is Jesus. So always let the Bible be its own commentary. So the rock is Jesus and being struck represents his death. And we know this because in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, Jesus talks about being struck. Now, just think about the symbolism. You're in the middle of a desert. You have no water. The rock represents Jesus. You strike the rock, which represents Christ's death. And what comes flowing out of the rock? Water. What does Jesus say? John 4, verse 13. Jesus answered and said to whoever drinks this water will thirst again. That's the water of the well, the woman who's getting out. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Stay in John. Just go ahead to John chapter 7, please. John 7. John 7, look at verse 37. 
On the last day and great day of the feast, this would be the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you've ever studied out the Feast of Tabernacles, they have this great symbolism with water. So here the priests are doing things with water. On the last day and the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you realize the reason you are on this earth is to represent Jesus Christ and to give living water to someone who is in a desert and they're dying of thirst right in front of you? Your, your neighbors, your co-workers are going to go to hell. Now, I don't say that to burden you or throw this legalism on you because we can't make anybody get saved. But the question comes up is if I really believe John 7, and I look at John 7 right here. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Okay, Jesus, I thirsted. 22 years ago, I thirsted. I came to you and I drank. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart, whose heart? My heart will flow rivers of living water. How often do we get saved and just focus on us? How often do we get saved and then just focus on, I just want to be comfortable until Jesus returns. Lord, can I just die in my sleep in my 90s with all my grandkids and great kids, grandkids around me? Lord, can't I just be, you've heard me joke about this, I just want to be a missionary to the upper middle class. I don't need more than 3,000 square foot. I don't need a car newer than five years, less than 100,000 miles. We want this comfortable little lifestyle where Jesus says, no way. You are a vessel of living water, and out of your heart is supposed to flow living water to everybody you meet. So when you run into somebody who is in a desert, you can stop and say, I have the answer, and that answer is Christ. And when you get this mindset, it completely changes what you think. It completely changes how you live your life. Because all of a sudden, it's not about making me comfortable. It's about saying, am I really representing Christ in all that I do and all that I say? And i got to be honest with you. I think sometimes as individuals, we lose that, don't we? We lose this, this heavenly mindset of all that matters is Jesus. And when we lose that heavenly mindset, man, we start to struggle. And I think, to be quite honest with you, when we lose that heavenly mindset, sometimes I feel this is where we start getting into depression and to discouragement. Because why? Our eyes are focused on us. And look at everything that's wrong with my life. Man, that life doesn't matter what's wrong with it compared to someone not knowing Christ. This symbolism is so vital. They're in a desert. The rock is Jesus, 1 Corinthians 10. The water is the water of life, John 4, John 7. Striking the rock represents the death of Jesus. And it's a thirst that is now quenched through Christ. And the Bible says we get to carry this water of life in all that we do and say. And I'm just saying this in love, and I'm really asking you guys not to make you feel bad. When's the last time you gave the water of life to somebody? When's the last time you saw a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, whatever it is, in the desert of life, dying of thirst, and you said, I got an answer for this. Let me tell you about what Christ did. That passion for the Lord and what he did. Now, we're going to take a quick break here. Anybody got any quick questions, comments over anything we talked about here? Yeah.
Harold. It wasn't necessarily that the younger generation did not believe in idols. What happened was the final straw was when they sent the spies into the promised land. And as they sent the spies into the promised land, two spies came back, Caleb and, and Joshua, and said, we can do this. All the other spies said, we can't. And all the people then said, well, we can't. God says, this is the end, the final straw. So why was the younger generation allowed to continue? They were allowed to continue because they were not part of that older generation that said, Lord, we don't believe you can conquer the promised land for us. So the older generation was a generation of disbelief, a belief of complaining, where the younger generation didn't make that decision. That's why the Lord said, I'm going to let you die off. It took 40 years for them to do that. And if you've ever studied it out, they wandered for 40 years. And according to Deuteronomy, the distance they wandered only supposed to take them 11 days. And they just wandered. If you want to read the most boring chapter in the Bible, it's Numbers 33, where it lists every stop they make while they wander. You know, when Dawn and I, before we had kids, we used to go down to Atlanta all the time. And, and I got this from my dad is that when you take off on a car trip, you don't stop. You go as far as you can, as long as you can, and that's what it is. And that's the way we were traveling. And, and you know, God bless Dawn, we could do that. And we were just going to travel and get as many hours and many miles as we could under our belt. Soon as you start having children, <laughs> you're stopping every five minutes. I look at Numbers 33, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is what they did for 40 years? We're going to go a little bit in camp. We're going to go a little bit in camp. We're going to go a little bit in camp. I mean, like, Lord, kill me now. I mean, because that's, you're just letting us die off. You're just letting us die off. That, that's what it was. They didn't have faith. And so since they didn't have faith, God says, listen, you don't even think, you don't even think that I can take the giants out in the promised land? And this is where God said, enough. I part of the Red Sea, I gave you water, I gave you quail, I gave you man, I took care of Egypt and the plagues. Enough. Now, I don't say this to scare you, but I sometimes wonder with us, oh Lord, it's an awful day at work, what are we going to do? James, haven't you seen me move in your life before? Yeah, but Lord, but this one's bigger. Faith. Proverbs says, how small is your faith when you falter in the day of adversity? We also got anything here before we go on. Marcus. It's kind of interesting how something as innocuous as a stick could be uh, turned into something with such a uh, power and image, and yet the people focused on, rather than the source of the power, they focused on a stick, and a stick became the image. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a great point there. Rather than focusing on the power behind the rod, the focus became on the rod. And what has happened is there's a huge examples of this throughout the entire Bible. Uh, Gideon's ephod became something they worship. Uh, the bronze serpent that the Lord used to save them became something they worship. And what you see is human nature is if we find something that we consider holy or used by God, we will put this thing in a glass case and pay money to see it. And this is why I firmly believe 
that, and, and, and please don't, don't come up to me after church and debate me on this. We can, we can talk about it later. This is why we don't know about Noah's Ark. This is why we don't know about the Ark of the Covenant. This is why we don't know for sure where Jesus died on the cross. We don't know for sure where he was born or the upper room. Because if, can you imagine if we truly, if we really had the cross that Christ died upon, people would be worshiping a piece of wood rather than the Savior that was on it. And, and, and Marcus is absolutely right. This rod becomes the image rather than the power behind the rod. And we do this as human beings, too. We elevate people and churches and ministries where instead of focusing on how the Holy Spirit is using them, hey, let's focus on the man. Man, that's a dangerous place to be. Dangerous place to be. Anybody else have anything here? I just have to share this with you because we're not going to be able to get to it. Numbers 20, please. Numbers 20. If we were continuing Exodus and until Leviticus into Numbers, and knowing the pace that I go with on Wednesday night, we would get to Numbers 20 in roughly 2020. So I'm just going to take it to Numbers 20 right now because this is really part two of the whole thing. And a lot of you know the uh, point where I'm going here now in Numbers 20. Numbers 20, fast-forwarding years. Verse 1 of Numbers 20, Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zen in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Miriam was Moses and Aaron's sister. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. Hey, let's complain again. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Now look at them, verse 3. Now it's not only would we have died in Egypt. Now, why couldn't you have just killed us when everybody else died? Verse 4, why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness and that we and our animals should die here? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates noise or any water to drink. I mean, right there, if I was Moses, I would say, hey, guys, you wanted the grain, the figs, the vines, the pomegranates? Okay, well, then you know what? When we said there's the promised land, you should have went in. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Okay, that's good. Go to the Lord with your problems. Verse 7, then the Lord spoke to Moses, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock, you know where I'm going with this, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water, and thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Now just stop right there, don't read ahead, even though you know what's happening, don't read ahead. Speak to the rock. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10. The rock represents Jesus. Striking the rock back in Exodus 17 represents Christ dying on the cross. Speak to the rock means that now when you want salvation, you only have to speak to Jesus and ask for water and he gives you water. Jesus doesn't have to keep crawling back on the cross for every one of us every time we need salvation. You strike the rock once, it brings forth water. If you need water from here on, hey, rock, can I have some water? It's like this little drinking fountain thing. Okay? Speak. Verse 9. Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you do not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Wow. Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. Can you imagine that disappointment 
I mean, seriously, I don't, I don't think we can fathom. I mean, I'm trying to imagine the, the most disappointing thing I could do to my kids. I don't just, just tell them I'm going to take them to the most amazing place of the world and take them up to the entrance, get the wallet out. I'm going to pay the money to go into this wonderful location and then just look at my kids and say, hey, do you remember yesterday when you didn't say yes quick enough? Back in the car. Man, this is Moses that at the beginning of Exodus was going to kill an Egyptian one by one and bury him in the sand. This is Moses that went through a 40-year discipleship class. 40-year discipleship class in the wilderness. This is Moses that has just been waiting to lead Israel into the promised land, but yet now his punishment is, you misrepresented me. Because why? Verse 12. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. What did Moses do wrong? Well, first off, verse 10, Hear now, you rebels. God didn't say that. In fact, if you go back and look at God, if you reread verse 8, God doesn't really sound that angry. Hear now, you rebels. Must we? We? Okay, Aaron and Moses, now you are supernaturally creating water out of rocks. And now you strike the rock twice. God's beautiful symbolism of Jesus being struck once and then speaking to him for salvation just got thrown out the window. God says, Moses, I can't have you leave now. But the question comes up in verse 11. The water still came out. You know why? Because God's a God of grace. God's a God of mercy. I take time and energy and effort and study and prayer to prepare a lesson for you on Wednesday nights. I could just get up on Wednesday night and just say, guys, we're just going to read Exodus 17. Take us five minutes, and I could say we're done. And God would still honor that and bless that. Why? Because he's God. The messages, the, the worship, the service that we do out here are not blessed because of what we do. They're blessed because God's good. And he does it. Anybody that is led by the Spirit that has the gift of teaching can get up and teach. It's not so special that it's one person. Soon as you start thinking it's you, that's where you're in trouble. Moses, Aaron, you're not bringing forth water. God, even in his punishment, still gives grace. You guys need water. I get it. Take the water. But there's still discipline to this. So Moses does not get to go into the promised land And as you get to the end of Deuteronomy, you don't need to turn there. Moses gets to go up at 120, look at the promised land, but not allowed to go in. Because when he misrepresented that symbolism of what that rock represents in Christ, and God does not like it when we misrepresent salvation, when we misrepresent Jesus, man, that's a tough, tough thing to do. Tough, tough thing to do. Hey, something we do every time that we hear sirens, uh, we just take a moment and pray. Uh, Lord, I don't know what's going on there, but we heard the sirens, and we just want to pray for safety for all those involved, whatever is going on. Safety as they travel to and from, and if there's somebody hurt or injured, just your hand would be upon that in all ways. In your name, amen. So that rock represents Christ and the symbolism of that. And that's why it's so important. When Moses struck it twice, it represents Jesus having to go back on the cross to die again. That doesn't mean that. 
we just speak the words for salvation. And God honors that. And the water keeps flowing. And they got any final things they want to say here? Questions, comments before we close up? All right. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a desert. We work in a desert.